uh, preaching on uh, Psalm 73 today. So I'll start with the reading. Uh, just Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would speak to each one of us this morning through it. We give you thanks for the opportunity and the privilege and the, and the freedom to be able to do this. And we commit the morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long, and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set their, them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, you will, dis you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I always say the reading of the word of God is the most powerful part of any sermon. Uh, so may the Lord bless the reading of it. So the title of the, the message today is Seeing the Justice and Goodness of God in Adversity. Uh, there's a reality in this life that often the wicked are more prosperous than the righteous. They're successful in propagating their worldly agenda which often results in oppression to the righteous and negative effects on the culture in general. <clears throat> the question that we who seek to walk according to God's law struggle with is how do we respond when God allows the wicked to prosper 
and when, he pers when we personally suffer as a consequence of their sin. It causes us often to question God's goodness and his justice. The psalmist who wrote Psalm 73 is grappling with the same question. Verses 1 through 3 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is thinking, I know that God is good to the people of Israel because I've learned of the evidence throughout the history of the, of the nation of Israel. But as for me, I'm not so sure that he's good to me. Today we see in our culture the negative effects of, wicked, of the wicked prospering. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, verse, verses 4 through 12, the psalmist gives a list of evidence that shows the wicked are prospering in so many ways. Uh, there are no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They have, they're not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. That's a manifestation of their pride. Uh, therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. You see the words that he uses, abundance, uh, not in uh, plague like mankind, no trouble. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? They're discounting any sense of that God will hold them accountable for their actions. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Today we see our culture, the negative effects of the wicked prospering the rise in the legalization of homosexuality, the transgender movement, unhindered abortion. It's characteristic of Judges 21-25 where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus is not recognized as king of all the earth today. In addition to this, there are our own personal experiences of rejection by unbelievers, our neighbors, co-workers, even family members, many of whom have better homes, better jobs, better cars, and they have nothing going wrong in their lives. In the same time, many believers struggle with financial issues, health problems, and other difficulties. Circumstances in the world and in our personal lives often cause us to question or to pass judgment on God's choices for our lives. We see the psalmist voicing his frustration as he looks at the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogance as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verses 13 through 16, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. 
If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. And verses 21 and 22, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So he's looking at all the prosperity of the wicked and seeing all the trouble he's having and questioning the goodness of God in his own life and God's justice. As I looked at the scripture in the, as a whole, I see a common thread of man questioning the justice of God during times of adversity. In the book of Job, Job does not know why he is suffering and her, his friends are with increasing zeal saying that the, Job, the reason Job is suffering is because of his, he's a terrible sinner which is an accusation that God rebukes at the end of the book. But Job knows he is not a sinner, and it's testified even by God at the beginning of the book, the very first verse of the book, uh, where it says that God describes Job as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. As his suffering goes on and on, he accuses God of being unjust because he doesn't deserve his suffering, nor does he know why, his why he is suffering. But God himself, in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 8, rebukes Job when he says, Will you annul my judgments? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? We see the same accusation towards God in the book of Jonah, seen by Jonah's anger, when after he finally goes and declares God's coming judgment to, to Nineveh, they repent and the Lord decides not to destroy them. But Jonah is angry because he believes that the right thing was that God should have eradicated them from the face of the earth. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 says, but it, is, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord says to him, Do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah believes that God was wrong to spare the Ninevites, and he's angry because of it. Jesus illustrates this in the, in a, in a, as a common feature of men when he tells the people the parable of the, of the laborers hired at different times of the day in Matthew chapter 20, there were men hired at the beginning of the day who agreed to one denarius for the day's work. When the men who started working on the 11th hour of the day received the same amount, those hired first accused the landowner of not being fair by paying both groups the same amount. Matthew 20, verses 10 through 15, says, When they, those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. 
but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men only worked only one hour, and they have been made equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give the last men the same, what is that to you? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Their envy caused them to accuse the landowner of injustice. Uh, During tragedy or other difficult circumstances, there is a tendency for us to become angry and demand that God explain why this is happening to us. In doing so, we are accusing God of injustice in the same way. Self-righteousness is at the center of the proud, deceitful heart of man. It is part of the old nature for man to gravitate towards justifying themselves. The heart of an unregenerate person feels that their good works should be accepted by God as a reason for them to get into heaven. And if not, then God is being unreasonable and unjust. After we become believers, the Holy Spirit continues to purge us of judging God as being in the wrong when things don't go the way we desire. We need to be reminded of the character of who God is and consider what is going on behind the scenes. God's ways are perfect. Psalm 18, verses 30 through 31 says, This God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? He is the standard of righteousness and justice. And every action of man is judged against his absolute truth and righteousness. Every sovereignly ordained circumstance in our lives, both blessing and adversity, are designed to fulfill his purpose in our lives. But he often does not see the need to reveal the reasons to us. He desires for us to trust him without knowing why. As creator and ruler of the universe, he is the ultimate judge. Justice is part of his essential character. His perfect holiness requires that his wrath be poured out against rebellious violation of his law directed against himself. He cannot simply overlook sin, but requires an equal punishment to match the violation. 
for believers, payment for all of our sin was atoned for by Jesus' death on the cross for each one of us. We deserve the punishment of hell for as adequate, equal compensation for our sin against the holy God. That, it that to understand sin properly, we need to see how much of sin against a holy God requires suffering in hell forever. And it was only the deliverance of Christ on the cross where he took the punishment for our sins that was able to actually atone for that much, that terrible uh, sin that we've required, that we've uh, committed. As creator of the universe, he is justified in judging the, the sin of every single individual. The psalmist's eyes were open to the truth of God's ultimate judgment on the wicked. In verses 16 through 20, he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. God calls the, wickeds to account, the wicked to account for their actions. Sometimes he does this in this life and he brings an end to their wickedness. But at other times, they live a full life and die in prosperity without having anything go wrong in their lives. But ultimately, wicked, unregenerate men who have rejected Christ will answer to his divine judgment. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He says the never take your own revenge because he knows that's the natural tendency of, of our heart is to, uh, to pass judgment on the wicked and forget how wicked we were before Christ called us to himself. The question is, is why doesn't God judge the wicked now? Why hasn't he just God destroyed Hollywood? Wouldn't the church flourish if the wicked were destroyed today? We should consider that God is actually judging the wicked through their prosperity. Because their prosperity and carefree life keeps them from seeing their need for Christ. When a person has the resources to get anything they want, they don't need God. We see this in verse 6 as the response to the wicked in their action. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them.
It's pride that motivates the rejection of Christ. But Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. God, God does not consume the wicked now because he is a God of mercy, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. It's the mercy of God that is patient with each one of us that brought us to Christ at the time he did and kept us until that day. We see Jesus' mercy in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 54. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus' response to them was in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. Every moment that the wicked are not judged is an act of mercy on the part of God. The fact that he preserved each one of us before we came to the point of coming to Christ was an act of mercy on his part that he preserved us until that day. In our lives, God has purpose when he brings suffering and difficulty and disappointments into our lives. Because through adversity, God has stripped away our dependence on ourselves and draws us to see our true treasure exists in Christ alone. Historically, the church has thrived the most during times of adversity. You see that today, a lot of times that the church has struggled in terms of its place in the world because the American church has, is so comfortable and hasn't suffered any adversity. We see adversity as a bad thing, but in reality, it's God's means to uh, purify his church. We see God's continued love and action towards us even when we accuse him of injustice because of our suffering. When the psalmist's heart was embittered in verses 21 and 22, God's response is seen in verses 23 and 24. He starts it out with the word, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand, the psalmist says. With your counsel you will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. You see, despite the psalmist bringing accusation against God that he's not doing right because the, the wicked are doing so well and the, uh, the righteous are suffering, 
Nevertheless, God is gracious to him. God's love is constantly drawing us to himself and working to remove the obstacles that keep us from finding our all in all in him. The psalmist at the end of the psalm recognizes the preciousness of his relationship with the Lord and that true joy and fulfillment reside in him and not in perfect circumstances. At the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist is lamenting that the wicked have it better than he has it. But at the end, he recognizes that what he has in his relationship with the Lord is better than what the wicked have. So it's a big turnaround in terms of a value system, recognizing Christ is more precious than the things of this world. He expresses this in verses 25 and 20 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." It's recognizing that the good exists in our relationship with the Lord, not in possessions or comfort. The benefit of, grow, of our growing relationship with Jesus Christ, even though it, is, it contains suffering along the way, the, the benefits of our growing relationship are not comparable to anything that we may possess on earth during our lifetime. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Intimacy with Jesus Christ transcends any suffering or loss we experience in this age and is our source of endurance. Romans 8.37 says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We live in a world characterized by unfulfilled desires and lack of peace because of the fall of man into sin. Romans 8.22 and 23 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth, together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Jesus alone can satisfy the longing of the heart and meet our innermost needs for wholeness and peace. Psalm 17, verse 15 says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That word satisfied, that's the thing that all of mankind pursues. 
A greater vision of Jesus causes the desires of the things of this earth to fade and the difficulties we experience to be light in comparison. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, everything is always weighed on the scale in terms of we are motivated in our lives to pursue the thing that we perceive gives us the greatest value. And it's recognizing the love of Christ and all he has done for us that draws us to himself. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 expresses the same idea. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We see the psalmist that he, at the beginning, was looking at the temporal things in evaluating whether the wicked are doing better than he is. But at the end, he recognizes that having possessing Christ is of far greater value, even though he can't see Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit's work in his life makes him real to, to the point of being able to turn aside from the things of this world that, that distract us. Just three application points as, as, as I close is number one, don't judge God's goodness by your outer circumstances but recognize that every difficulty is a sign of God's love at work to purify our hearts and draw us into a greater intimacy with Christ as we grow in dependence on him. Our greatest praise towards God is when we can thank him for his hidden care during our trials and not merely after we have been delivered through from them. The second one is, is ask yourself, is Jesus worth living for? Satan's attack is to get us caught up in spending our lives on lesser things. We need to make a decision every day do I want to have an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus Christ which lasts forever? Or am I trying to be satisfied with a comfortable life, the admiration of men, and other temporal things that are going to perish? Am I willing to give up the things that are hindering my growing closer to Him? We need to examine our lives and not be tricked into living for the things that don't last and that don't satisfy. Just as I 
read a minute ago, the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal. And the third point is, is the time daily in the word of God and prayer is essential to a deepen to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. But that, that is also the last thing the enemy of your soul wants you to do. It takes a committed determination to pursue Jesus Christ. And that flows out of recognizing that pursuing him and possessing him and having a growing relationship is far better than anything we have to give up. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would challenge each one of us to pursue you and to look to you to grow in a deeper way and that you would come and fill our lives with yourself to where there is no room for temporal things. We pray that you would help us to make a commitment to, to be in your word and to be in prayer and, and to put aside the things that distract us and draw us away from, from and make that a priority. Just be in your word. We thank you for your care and love for us even when we can't see it. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness and holiness and for your atoning sacrifice that brought to us what we didn't deserve in our salvation. Lord, we commit our day to you and pray that you would go with each one of us and take your word with us uh, and that we would be different than when we walked in here today. We give you thanks for the opportunity and the privilege now in Jesus' name. Amen.